0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT and as always I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Millions of people all over the world enjoy spending time camping, hiking, and exploring the forests of this planet and one would think expert hunters, young and in excellent shape, should not have much to worry about, especially when in a group. Depending on where you are You may have to worry about apex predators like bears, wolves, and mountain lions, along with snakes and other natural dangers. But what about robots? Yes, you heard me right, folks. I did say robots. Or at least that's the closest thing the witness in tonight's astounding case could find to describe what he encountered in a national forest deep in the Californian wilderness in 1964. Make sure you stick around as I will cover over one of the strangest UFO cases I have heard of in my 35 plus years of studying the UFO enigma. Well folks, hopefully that campfire sound really puts you in the mood for tonight's story. It's really a fascinating case, and although the case is over 50 years old, it's only really become well known in the last 10 years or so. I only heard of it uh, in the last 5 to 10 years, and there's good reason for that. The witness in this case really tried to keep things quiet as he had a lot to lose. He didn't want to lose his well-paying job and the ability to provide for his wife and his children. So it's only been in the last 10 years or so that he released his name and allowed a book to be written around the encounter. So again, this is really a fascinating case, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's definitely uh, hits a 10 on the on the weird factor as far as that goes. Aside from that, folks, uh, before I get too far into the program, I just wanted to make one very quick correction. On last week's show, when I was talking about the Wendigo and I was, uh, you know, in in the news of the damned, I was talking about cattle mutilations, and I stated that cattle mutilations tend to happen in the Midwest and the Northwest, but actually, they do happen all over the U.S., And I forgot to mention the the Southwest. So areas like Colorado, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, they have a very high proportion of cattle mutilation cases. So I just wanted to clear that up. Uh, Sorry for that. But when I catch myself in instances like this, I do try to correct them just so that you know. know, It's not that it completely slipped my mind. It's just sometimes when I'm recording a show, I don't want to go back and re-edit a whole segment just because of a slight omission like that. Now, aside from that, folks, I hope that you are well wherever you are in the world. I know there's still a lot of you know, strife and uh, upheaval going on all around this planet. Right now, we're being slammed by a bit of a storm front. Uh, we've had heavy, high winds all day, and it's been a very frustrating day for me as far as trying to work on this program. Uh, my, I've had issues with my printer. I've had issues with my audio. I've had issues with my sinuses or hay fever. I've had issues with, uh, you name it, you know, with the sound of the wind and the storm. It's been uh, very frustrating, but I endeavor to soldier on and I hope that you appreciate it. I hope that you enjoy tonight's program. Now, uh, as always, I would like to give my traditional shout outs to everyone. First and foremost to you, the listener, anywhere where you are in the world. If you're hearing my voice, thank you so much for listening to the program i couldn't do it without you i appreciate all of the kind words and the encouragement i get thank you so much Uh, if you would like to support follow the show you can find the paranormal sun on instagram it's just the paranormal sun you can find the paranormal sun on facebook i've got a facebook group i've got a website which is www.theparanormalsun.com you can go there you can find some blog postings you can find all of the programs and i really do hope that you enjoy the content that i put out you can also go on to the website and if you so feel you can donate to me you can uh, donate to the program on on patreon and again i appreciate anything that anyone does to support me whether it's monetarily or not Um, you know we all have bills to pay i understand i know it's not the best time in the world for anyone to be supporting others uh, it's not a very easy, easy uh time right now, having lost my job um you know just about eight months ago now, I fully realize how difficult it is for everyone now on to William for all of those of you who are wondering want the uh dachshund update, so to speak uh look, William is still uh basically treading water, he is in decent shape, you know he's is his spirits are up, he's barking, he's happy, but he can't walk still. Uh, he cannot urinate by himself. We have to take him to the vet every day to, uh, you know, have his uh, have him drained, which can be quite difficult, especially considering the current lockdown that we're going through. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, it's just one day at a time. He's had some very small improvements as far as feeling uh, sensation in his legs and that, but, you know, at this point, I still don't know if he will walk again. So, again, thanks, everyone, for supporting me and asking about William it does mean the world to me. Now, as far as you know, the traditional shout-outs to everyone who supports the show, you know, aside from just the general listeners. Uh, Thank you to Eddie and his family in California. Thank you so much, Eddie. I appreciate everything you do. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, I'm so sorry uh, about the loss in your family. It's such a difficult thing, as we all know. Life is not fair. Uh, Oftentimes, really good People are taken at such a young age, and it's a shame. Um, you know, my uh, all I can say is my condolences. I wish there was more that I could do. Uh, just hang in there, be strong, and hopefully, you know, as with so many other things, this in time will get easier for you to deal with. Again, I'm so sorry to hear it. To my Chicagoland listeners, and as I say, you know, the quite unusual podcast, thanks again so much for the support. It means the world to me. It's really been appreciated. Thank you so much. To Scott and Matt over at the Old 77 thanks again. You know, as always, thanks for reaching out to me, checking up on me, making sure I'm okay. Uh, You know, the kind words of encouragement really mean the world to me. And last but not least, of course, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina. Again, um, hats off to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your support of the program. And as I say to everyone who's listening, To my listeners all over the world, my listeners in France, my listeners in New Zealand, Australia, all over the globe, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me. It does mean the world to me, and you are the wind in my sail that allows me to continue doing this program because you really give me the motivation to get out there every week, research a topic for you, and do my best to present a show that you enjoy and as i say if you've got any feedback feel free to get a hold of me i'm always happy to do my best to improve the program uh you know look positive reinforcement is great but uh, also positive criticism is fine if there are things that you think i could do a little better if there's something that you think that you know maybe i've missed out or something fascinating about one of the cases you may know that i didn't uncover in my investigations please by all means let me know So my friends, with that all having been said, it's time to move on to the News of the Damned. For those of you who are new to the program, the News of the Damned is a homage to Charles Fort. Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering these odd and strange tales and coalescing them into books so that people could read about them and understand some of the strange things that were going on around the world. Now, Charles Fort referred to any of these items that were ignored or excluded by science that could not be explained as damned data, thus the News of the Damned. Now, traditionally, folks, I will give you three articles in the News of the Damned. However, tonight, there will be a special fourth one. So I'm going to have three for you, and then the fourth one is dedicated to Carla. So, folks, this week, I didn't really get a chance to do a lot of studying or uh, osmosing other strange types of cases that I normally would, it's been very full on with Williams recovery. So I haven't had a chance to cover over some of the things that I personally wanted to and learn a bit more about. Some of them were the some of the shows that I mentioned on YouTube before. So uh, yeah, you know, I'll get a chance this week. And you know, if there's anything in there that's worth updating you on, I'll make sure I come back. As always, uh, there are links to all of these articles in the show notes There will be in tonight's program, as always. So the first one here is something that I've been covering over on an ongoing basis, and it is something that many people are definitely interested in. And this one is from coasttocoastam.com, and this one is titled Pentagon Creates UFO Task Force. Now, this just happened over the weekend, so August 17th, 2020. And again, this is from Tim Bernal. So it says, UFO enthusiasts around the world were in a celebratory mood over the weekend after the Pentagon officially announced that they had established a special task force aimed at studying unidentified aerial phenomena. The news came by way of a press release issued late Friday evening by the Department of Defense following reports that the creation of such a group was to be revealed to the public imminently. In the announcement, they stated that on August 4th, 2020, Deputy Secretary of Defense David L. Norquist approved the establishment of an Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAP Task Force, UAPTF. The group, they explained, will be led by the Department of the Navy and seeks to improve its understanding of and gain insight into the nature and origins of UAPs. The mission of the task force is to detect, analyze, and catalog UAPs that could potentially pose a threat to U.S. national security. The press release went on to say that the safety of our personnel and the security of our operations are a paramount concern. Department of Defense and the military departments take any incursions by unauthorized aircraft into our training ranges or designated airspace very seriously and examine each report. This includes examinations of incursions that are initially reported as UAP when the observer cannot immediately identify what he or she is observing. This intriguing turn of events is a continuation of what has been a fascinating few years for the UFO phenomenon, as it has gone from something of a verboten subject in political and military circles, at least as far as the general public is concerned, to a widely discussed issue that has reached all the way to the president on multiple occasions. With regards to the UAPTF itself, as seems to always be the case with UFOs, questions abound. Perhaps the most pressing of them all is how forthcoming the group will be with their findings. While long-time UFO fans are understandably excited about the creation of the task force, it might be wise to temper expectations since previous efforts from the government, such as the legendary Project Blue Book, failed to provide any answers with regards to the origin and nature of the puzzling phenomenon. Now our next article here is from one of my favorite journalists. His name is George Knapp. Uh, I first heard of George Knapp when he would be a fill-in host on Coast to Coast AM. But George Knapp is the man who basically broke the Bob Lazar story. He's from Las Vegas, or at least he's lived there for quite a while. That's where he makes his home. And he has a segment on Coast to Coast AM called Knapp's News, where he will have some excellent uh, you know, stories each week. So that's where I got this story from. And this one is from www.mysterywire.com. And this one is titled Area 51 and the CIA, Secrets Revealed by Former Base Worker. And this one came out on August the 13th, and it's by George Knapp. So it says, Mystery Wire, a veil of secrecy is slowly being lifted from the world's best known secret military facility. Several years after the CIA gave the green light to a former worker at Area 51 to publish a three-volume book project all about the base, more is still being learned and new photographs continue to be taken and released. The base, commonly known as Area 51, is located about 100 miles northwest of Las Vegas. That's about 160 kilometers. Currently, it's an Air Force facility, but it began as a CIA outpost and was home to all manner of classified projects. Thanks to the continued effort of a longtime CIA electronics specialist, many secrets have been declassified over the years. That specialist is T.D. Barnes. We were doing a presentation in the bubble at CIA when they declassified us using the name Area 51, said T.D. Barnes, former CIA specialist. The images on the walls of his home office were once so sensitive they could have landed T.D. Barnes behind bars if he had made them public. But times have changed. During his years as president of an organization called Roadrunners International, Barnes led the efforts to tell the real story about what is today the best known secret base in history. His members, pilots, and engineers who had worked on classified programs shared bits and pieces, including photos. Barnes would even ask CIA for permission to post them on the group's website. Until a few years ago, CIA would never even acknowledge the name Area 51, though it was known worldwide but the Roadrunners helped change all of that. In fact, they almost shoved it at us. The information for these books they send me. They said, we just declassified 25,000 pages, Barnes said. One reason for the change of heart is the CIA lost the records of its own programs. All photos and files regarding Project Oxcart, or the U-2 spy plane, were lost by the Air Force. So CIA historian Dr. David Robarge Hope the Roadrunners could help reconstruct that history, which is what happened. The U-2 was built during the darkest days of the Cold War, a time when we were actually in a hot war with Russia. American lives were being lost, though the public never knew about it. The Air Force at that point, before they decided to go with the U-2, we had already lost 10 flights with over 75 crewmen killed in Russia, trying to do what the U-2 eventually did. They were going in with planes that could not get above the missiles. They called them ferret flights. They would dart in to get what they could, and they'd get shot down, Barnes said. Barnes solicited input from his members, not only about the U-2, but also the programs that followed, including the so-called Blackbirds. He obtained so much material, including photos taken inside Area 51 of planes and programs and everyday life at Groom Lake, that his plan to compile one book became three books instead, the CIA Area 51 Chronicles and the books are here they say book one is the angels book two is the archangels, and book three is the company business and they just had a photo of the three books here folks so i just thought i'd tell you those in case you run into them among the many surprises barnes says the famed sr-71 blackbird officially the fastest plane in history never flew out of groom lake other planes in the blackbird family were flown there including the a12 which flew higher and faster than any plane ever built by humans barnes said although its accomplishments remain classified. Yeah, we called the SR-71 the family model. It's the cheap model. The A-12 flew 5,000 feet higher, and it flew much faster, he said. The CIA employees bonded on and off the base, in part because Nevada was infested with Russian spies, trying to find out what was going on. Cover stories were told, and secrets were kept within the base itself to the point that few knew their true employer. Less than 5% of the people working at Area 51 had any inkling that they were working for the CIA, Barnes said. Today, Area 51 is an Air Force facility, but when Barnes is asked if the CIA is still there, he smiles and says he really can't say. So, folks, I mean, you read between the lines there. Again, Area 51 is definitely a divisive topic. It's one of those things where many people think that, you know, the CIA thing is a cover story for the fact that, you know, they actually have ufos and recovered technology there and others say that you know it it's nothing more secret than our, you know secret technology that's been developed there but nonetheless it is a very interesting topic i've seen a few of the documentaries on the national geographic channel about area 51 you know i think this gentleman was involved basically saying that it was um you know this is the reality of it and that it's secret testing of our government's technology. There's no UFOs involved, anything else. And again, as always, folks, you know, I keep an open mind on these things. And until proven one way or the other, I'll continue to be interested in Area 51. So the next topic here, uh, my listeners in Texas will quite enjoy this. And who knows, you know, you might get out there and make yourself rich. Unfortunately for me, I didn't win the $50 million lottery that, uh, was one over the weekend it was split between 10 people so they each got 5 million dollars so i couldn't build i couldn't buy the uh, loftus hall in ireland the most haunted uh, building in ireland but nonetheless you know someone in texas may win this and they may buy something just as fascinating you know so this one is from ksat.com which is a texas uh, tv station and this one is titled search for buried booty and texas treasure hunt An estimated $340 million is thought to be buried in Texas Hill Country. San Antonio. You could find buried treasure in the Texas Hill Country, an estimated $340 million worth. Texas is estimated to have $340 million in buried treasure, more than any other state in the U.S., according to TexasHillCountry.com. About 229 treasure sites are spread across the Lone Star State and some are even accessible to the public with permission from the landowners. Many of the alleged treasure locations below can be found in the Texas Hill Country if you're looking for socially distancing vacation from San Antonio or Austin. Other potential treasure troves require a longer drive, but if you're willing to camp out or find a hotel, Airbnb, etc., you could be in for a big payday. One Texas legend says there's a cache of Spanish silver buried somewhere outside of Leander, Comanche Indians were said to be chasing a train of pack mules carrying hefty loads of silver in the early 1920s, and the men in charge of the bounty buried the silver to keep it from being stolen. The silver has yet to be discovered, according to the Lone Star Treasure, which says the story is based on Spanish document from the Conquistador era. Legendary outlaw Sam Bass, him, is said to have buried his, his bounty from stagecoach, train, and bank robberies in several areas around the Texas Hill Country. One such story, according to multiple sources, says Bash stashed, stashed loot in an old hollow tree about two miles west of Round Rock. It has never been found. Bass is also tied to legends of treasure buried in Burnett and Lono counties, as well as Pack Saddle Mountain, Lone Star Treasure reports. According to legend, Bash used Longhorn Caverns in Burnett County as a hideout after some of his robberies, although treasure seekers have yet to find any loot in the caverns. Pack Saddle Mountain in eastern Lono County is another alleged Basque treasure location. Rumor has it the outlaw hid gold in canvas sacks on Pack Saddle Mountain and that some of it could still be there. Roughly $60,000 in gold and silver coins is said to be buried in a creek bed near Castell, a community in Lono County. Bass allegedly marked the spot with a rock and the fork of a tree, according to Lone Star Treasure. If the rumors are true, Cove Hollow Near Denton is another Bass treasure location. Bass reportedly stole 3,000 gold bars from the Union Pacific Railroad, some of which have been recovered, but there are gold bars that have still not been found according to OnlyInYourState.com. Ever seen an oak tree with a carving of two eagle wings on it? According to TexasHillCountry.com, legend says there's close to $3 million buried near where Shoal Creek empties into the Colorado River. The stolen bounty was part of the Mexican payroll in 1836, and it's allegedly buried five feet deep near the oak tree. The Sabine River could potentially hold a $2 million fortune in stolen silver. Oil workers actually picked up readings that metal was to be found at the bottom of the lake. They sent a probe down, and it hit metal just before a giant storm hit, destroying the raft and any other evidence. According to OnlyInYourState.com, the fortune is said to have been stolen from the Spanish by Jean Lafayette. So that's quite an infamous pirate in the Gulf of Mexico, for those of you who may not know. Hispanic conquistadors reportedly hit a massive cache of gold and jewels in a mine shaft in the Franklin Mountains near El Paso's Guadalupe Mission, only in yourstate.com reports. The conquistadors are said to have filled in the mine so nobody else could discover the hoard. Supposedly, it still lies buried beneath the dirt. Legend has it that El Paso's Guadalupe Mission was built in such a way that sends the noon sunlight shining straight onto the mine. Have you ever heard of Money Hill near the southern tip of South Padre Island? It's said that John Singer buried a chest in the mid 1800s containing sixty to eighty thousand dollars in various Spanish coins, silver bars, and jewelry which we, he acquired through salvaging shipwrecks. Singer buried the chest after being forced to leave his home and returned several times in an effort to find his buried treasure, but was never able to recover the fortune. Read the full story of Money Hill on legendsofamerica.com. Californian musician Nathan Smith might have actually found one of Texas's hidden treasure troves. Smith believes he found a sunken ship on Google Earth in 2006 in Refugio, just north of Corpus Christi. There's quite a bit of backstory on this one, which can be read on Texas Monthly. The treasure is estimated to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Think you can find some of the legendary hidden booty. May the odds be ever in your favor. And, uh, yeah, folks. And then it just wraps up talking about the force fan treasure here at the end, which really has nothing to do with Texas. So again, Texas is a massive state. I know I've got listeners in Texas and some very good friends of the show. And I remember as a boy, you could wake up in the morning and drive leave one part of Texas and go to bed at night and and it would still, you'd still be in Texas. That's how big of a state it is. So I've got no surprise. It's one of the states with, you know, the the most cases of buried treasure. It's also been, you know, settled on and off for hundreds of years by, you know, Europeans and the Spanish. And then, um, you know, on top of that, you've also got the involvement of the Aztecs before that, maybe not the Aztecs, but other indigenous tribes. So I am not surprised at all with all the wars, the conflict, and the outlaws that have been involved there, that there would be such a large amount of treasure hidden in the state of Texas. So for anyone who goes out looking, good luck. And uh, don't forget your friends here at the Paranormal Sun if you do find any. And now, my friends, on to the last article of the evening. This is your fourth and bonus story of the news of the dam this evening. And this is dedicated to Carla. So you know, this is a article about um, cryptid uh, being filmed in Iceland. Now, this came from the Reykjavik Grapevine, and this one was published on August the 13th, and it says possible cryptid filmed in Iceland. This was from written by Catherine Magnus Dottir. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> Magnus. Magnus Dottir. So Icelandic is not easy to pronounce. Uh, I'm doing my best, and I apologize if I butchered that too badly, folks. So it says, a rather strange video was posted on Instagram yesterday depicting what could be interpreted as a possible cryptid in Iceland, a cryptid being a creature whose existence and origins are are mysterious and as of yet unknown, such as the Loch Ness Monster. Icelandic rapper Vigdis Hauser Haraditir, a k a fever dream official on Instagram posted the clip on her page. It shows the detifoss waterfall almost right at the edge of a cliff, zooming into the rushing water, but not before some odd movement can be seen just over the rocky edge. What appears to be a little dark figure is revealed to be moving right over the brink of the rock, although its shape is near impossible to determine in her post. Vigdis writes that she she hadn't noticed this little creature looking like the girl from The Ring, in the video until later. No drones, no birds, no plastic bags. What is it?" she writes. In a conversation with... eh, Sorry, folks, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. I think it's Freta... Freta blid. Vigdis says that she's not claiming that whatever she filmed is some elf, but that it is a bit freaky. She claims the video was not intended to turn out this way. She had been traveling with her boyfriend in the area, and said that that day there were only a few people around at the waterfall and that the conditions of the area would have made it impossible for anyone to climb down in there. According to the report, Vigtas does not intend to claim that there is anything supernatural going on, but the video is interesting and that is why she has decided to publish it. The entire video can be seen here on Vigtas' Instagram page or below. So there's a link here that you can click on. Uh, There's a link to the video. So it's not a very long clip, folks. It's only, you know, maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds. But I've taken the time to look at this. I don't know exactly what it is, but it is quite interesting to say the least. Uh, Does it look like it could potentially be photoshopped? To me, it's got some pretty crisp edges. I'm no expert in this field, but, um, you know, I've seen similar things like that. But anyway, whatever it is, it's quite interesting. And if something further comes out about it, I'll make sure to update you. But yeah, it, look, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's worth you just clicking uh, onto the link in the show notes and then going over and checking it out. So with that, folks, that is the news of the dam for this evening. I hope that you have enjoyed those three articles and the bonus article uh, that was dedicated to Carla. I hope that you enjoyed it. And now on to the main topic of tonight's show, which is the super fascinating 1964, Cisco Grove, California, UFO case. It's the evening of the 4th of September, 1964. Three young friends decide to go on an overnight hunting trip. What occurs on that fateful evening will change their lives forever. On that fateful evening, 28-year-old Donald Trump and his two friends, Vincent Alvarez and Tim Trueblood, who were all employees of Aerojet in Rancho Cordova, California, a suburb of Sacramento, one on a bow hunting trip in the Tahoe National Forest near the town of Cisco Grove. They had a long weekend having taken Friday off and so planned to go hunting overnight Friday and head home the following Saturday afternoon. It was open season for deer hunting, but only with bows, not rifles. The day was progressing as expected and the men were all in good spirits as they went about the pursuit of game. All had considerable experience bow hunting and all were experienced and avid outdoorsmen. On this particular night, after having established the camp, they were hunting for deer. Perhaps due to their comfort in the outdoor environment, with the night fast approaching, they had all agreed that they would push deep into the woods in pursuit of their targets, and if they had to, they would spend the night in the woods and rendezvous back at the camp in the morning. Before long, all three were separated and venturing after their potential kills. With daylight losing the battle against the night, Shrum realized he had wandered far further from their initial camp than he had intended to, and he had climbed far up a series of ridges in a rocky area of a ravine to get a better view of the surrounding area. Shrum made the decision to find somewhere to bed down for the night, or more accurately, bed up. With the number of wild animals who might wish to turn the tables on a hunter, Shrum believed his best option was to find a cave or similar closed-in location to allow himself to create a semi-secure sleeping area. However, when he could find no location that looked promising and with night looming, he chose his backup plan Shrum had with him a military-style belt, which allowed him to secure himself in a tree. He would have preferred this option to camping on the ground, alone and ultimately defenseless. Shortly after securing himself for the night, while he was in his tree, Shrum occupied himself by looking up into the night sky. There he first noticed that there was a strange white light in the sky. Initially, he considered that it could be a star, but then he dismissed this, as the light began to move in a zigzag motion, maneuvering around the trees at low altitude and heading towards him. Thinking his two friends had arranged to search for him despite their agreement, he jumped from the tree quickly and moved to some rocks nearby and set three small signal fires, as was the procedure when signaling a search party, being lost in the woods during this time period to give away his location. Shrum was waving his arms and yelling for attention, because a person yelling from far away is easy to hear over the sound of a helicopter engine. He soon began to believe that what was headed his way wasn't a rescue helicopter at all. Once he realized that no noise was coming from the object, Shrum began to develop a sense of dread. He said he was sure it was from another world, but he wasn't sure why. He recalled the tale of Betty and Barney Hill he had read a few years earlier, and that feeling of dread slowly increased in his mind. At this point, he thought that what he was seeing was a small sphere of light, about eight inches in diameter. It wasn't until the light flew a 45-degree arc around him and he was able to see it from the side that he realized that the small ball of light was actually a huge cylindrical craft, approximately 150 feet in length, with a searchlight on the front and three glowing rectangular panels on the side. The mothership then came to stop and all three of the panels opened. A smaller craft flew out of the middle opening and came to a landing on a nearby ridge. Shrum described what he would later refer to as the scout ship As being saucer-shaped with a bright light on top. Understandably worried by the situation, Shrum ran back to the safety of the tree and tried to hide. He was wearing full camouflage and so felt relatively safe and concealed in the branches of the pine. For a while it was quiet, with just the usual noises of the forest around him. But then, after some time, Shrum noticed noises as if there was movement, and these noises were heading in his direction. Shrum next made sure his bow was at the ready. Fear was now rising as a seemingly unstoppable force within him. That fear would rise even more when, Shrum's, when to Shrum's horror, he soon saw two humanoid figures in silver spacesuits, which covered their heads and obscured their faces. They wore what appeared to be welding goggles. They were four to five feet tall with large dark eyes. They were breaking off pieces of foliage and examining them as they made their way to the tree where he was hiding. Once they reached the base of the tree, they stopped and stared straight up at him. This was when he realized that they had been coming for him the whole time. Shrum says that when the humanoid creatures first appeared, they seemed more interested in the plant life in the area. They went about breaking off and collecting pieces of the trees and plants nearby. Shortly after this, a third figure joined the first two. This one appeared to be a robot, with a hinged jaw and large reddish-orange eyes that flickered like fire. As it approached the tree, It reached into the last smoldering remnants of one of Shrum's signal fires and scattered the embers. The first two beings had seemed wary of the fire upon their approach. The three beings came closer to the tree as Shrum tried to hide high and motionless, but it was obvious to him that they knew where he was. He said that at this point he felt as though he had been fingered, and he was fully aware that they knew he was there. The two humanoids began to shake the tree, obviously in an effort to force him from it. He would cling on with all of his strength. The robot then stopped under the tree, looked up at Shrum, and touched its face. Its hinged mouth then fell open, and a puff of smoke came out, headed straight in Shrum's direction. As the smoke rose, it spread out into a small cloud, which rendered him immediately unconscious when it reached him. When he came to, he was still in the tree, and the beings were still shaking it, as if in order to get him to fall out. Aside from an intense feeling of nausea, he was unharmed. Shrum then decided to try and react in order to repel the beings, and remembering that he had matches in his pocket, he began to light them and drop them on the beings. This seemed to distract them momentarily, and they backed away. It was then that Shrum realized that it was as if there were radio signals coming from the light in the sky, and these signals were communicating with the beings, informing them of what to do. It was then, as, as if told to, that the three of them approached the tree again and began to resume their attack. Knowing he was in some serious danger at this point, Shrum loaded his bow and arrow and aimed it at the robotic type being, as he said it was the only creature that seemed to want to do him harm. His longbow was a 60-pound model and had the same velocity as a bullet fired from a rifle at that close range. And in, in other words, it was not a child's toy but a weapon crafted to kill large animals. The arrow made contact with the being's chest with a spark he described like the arc from a welder's torch, but bounced off As it did so, it caused a spark and a noise, as if it had hit a metal surface. Shrum loaded his bow and arrow again and fired another two shots at them. At this point, the two humanoids ran off and hid in some nearby bushes. Unfortunately, Shrum had only brought three arrows along for his intended deer quarry. This again made them scatter and retreat. Thinking that he was maybe succeeding at driving them off, some relief came over Shrum. But this quickly vanished as he noticed another of the robot beings emerging from the surrounding trees. This being came to the tree, and this time the two of the robot creatures emitted the same strange vapor from their mouths at Shrum. He again went unconscious for a short time, and when he awoke, he was confronted with the two more human-like beings climbing up the tree towards him. By kicking out and fighting, he managed to repel them, and instead they continued to try and dislodge him from the tree from the bottom by shaking. He began to light anything he could and then drop it down so as to deter them, including pieces of his clothing and his baseball cap. When he could no longer use clothing, he would throw branches, pine cones, the coins in his pocket, and anything else he could get his hands on. He threw his canteen at them. They stopped to pick it up and examine it momentarily, only to throw it back down and continue the cat and mouse game. Shrum then wrapped his compass in a strip of cloth, lit it on fire, and threw it into some bushes in the hope of starting a larger fire to attract their attention and bring help. It didn't work, and the two humanoids quickly gathered up all of the coins in the compass. While this nocturnal standoff played out, the strange aerial vehicles suddenly shot upwards and out of sight. The strange creatures below, however, continued undeterred by these events, and while Shrum could hold them off temporarily, they would ultimately return. This terrifying ordeal continued for about 12 hours, and Shrum had set fire to all but his jeans and t-shirt. Then the two robotic figures stood face to face, and some type of energy transfer seemed to take place between them after which a larger cloud of smoke was sent up towards Shrum, again rendering him unconscious, but this time into a much deeper state of slumber. When he awoke this final time, he was alone. The only thing keeping him in the tree was his belt. There was no sign of the ship having returned, but all of the creatures, including the robots, were gone. He was barely hanging from the tree by the military-style belt. He could also see that by now dawn was quickly heading his way. By the time dawn had broke, He dropped himself from the tree, dazed, tired, but largely unhurt. He would set out for the prearranged meeting place of the campsite from the previous afternoon. Once there, he would discover both of his friends waiting for him as planned. One of his fellow hunters, Vincent Alvarez, at least in part, could corroborate the incident. He would claim that he had watched a strange light in the night sky, and this had come closer in altitude, and he had made out a massive cigar-shaped object that could well have been 14 stories in height. He also claims that from this huge ship, there had appeared another smaller one that had descended into the forest at a distance from him and landed. It would then take off with great pace into the night sky. This would likely have been while Shrum was battling with the strange creatures. Incidentally, all three of the men would return to the destination later that day after hearing Shrum's story. They did find several of the arrows he had fired, as well as several pieces of charred clothing. However, the coins he had thrown at them had seemingly been scooped up by these menacing visitors before they left. His two friends would believe his claims though, in part due to Alvarez's own sighting of the glowing craft leaving the scene. Shrum told his family what had happened when he returned home, and his mother-in-law made the mistake of telling an astronomer that she knew from a local college, under the misguided notion that he might be able to help. This is when things began to take a gritty turn. The astronomer would immediately contact the nearby McClelland Air Force Base, He would inform them of the account and the location of the witness. Even more bizarre, instead of visiting him at his home to listen to his version of events, even though he had not made a report, McClelland Air Force Base soon contacted Shrum to set up a meeting between him and two officers at an empty house in an off-base housing development. They listened to his story, took the two arrowheads, one of which had metal shavings stuck to it from the robot, and tried to persuade him that the events as he remembered it never happened. They tried to convince him that there were other perfectly logical explanations for what had happened, such as it being a group of Boy Scouts playing a prank, and some other equally preposterous scenarios. At least they didn't yank his security clearance or tell on him to Aerojet, so he was able to keep his job until retiring 40 or so years later. He would eventually agree that he wasn't certain of what he had seen, if for no other reason than to keep his employers from facing similar questions. Judy Shrum, Donald Trump's wife, After reading an article about UFOs written by Donald Kehoe, at the time the director of NICAP sent a letter to Kehoe. That information was sent on to NICAP investigator Paul Cerny, who did the most comprehensive work on this case. According to that investigation, Vince Alvarez said, I was the one that found Shrum as he was heading towards camp. The night had been very cold, and all we had on at the time was a thin cotton t-shirt and his pants. He was weak and exhausted. I helped him to camp fixed some soup for him, and put him to sleep. He kept on saying that he would have been all right if they had left him alone. I didn't know what he meant, so we let him sleep. He slept for about six hours. When he awoke, he asked, we asked him how he felt. He said he felt fine. Then he said, turn on the radio. There may be something on the news about the spaceship I saw. The news did say something about a light in the sky. I also saw the light as I was working my way through the canyon to the camp. I got lost too on that night. We asked him what had happened to his clothes, and then he told us about his experiences. There were a number of investigations of the case by both official organizations and private groups. APRO researchers were among the first to interview Shrum. According to Coral Lorenzen, writing in Flying Saucer Occupants, we learned about this particular incident quite by chance through rumors in the Sacramento area, and notified Dr. James Harder, one of APRO's advisors. The first account of the witness's tale appeared in the July-August 1966 issue of the APRO Bulletin. Shrum read a copy of the report and noted many inaccuracies in it. For example, the Bulletin account placed the event in September of 1963. And in my research for this show, folks, I've seen others say it was in 1965, but Shrum himself uh, has said that it was definitely in 1964. Several other sources also got the date wrong with some suggesting the encounter happened on September 4th, 1964. In a Mufon Journal article, Stephen Reichmuth suggested that the actual date was September 11th. Blutcher and Cerny, in their IUR article, wrote, He, Shrum, was pretty sure that they were out in the area the first Friday after Labor Day, which of course would be the previous Monday. Unfortunately, it confuses the issue. Labor Day was September 7th, 1964, which would push the date of the sighting to Friday, September 11th this is too late since the letter from astronomer Victor Killick to Mather Air Force Base is dated September 9th. To make things even worse, a letter found in the government files written by Victor Killick, an astronomer consulted by the Shrum family noted, he, Shrum, told me that on Friday, September 5th, he and two companions went out for a deer hunt, but the truth is that the event took place on the night of Friday, September the 11th. So as you can see folks, there is a bit of confusion about the exact date but it was definitely in early September 1964 the air force eventually solved this case at least to their satisfaction according to the government files after abandoning their attempts to convince shrum he had either seen japanese tourists or teenage pranksters they suggested that shrum had seen owls and or other mundane creatures of the woods and let his imagination supply the rest of the details it was in effect a retreat to the other psychological category in the Project Blue Book files. Yet there seems to be evidence that the Air Force took a more active interest in the case than they let on. According to Shrum, about a month after the sighting, he, along with his brother and his two hunting companions, returned to the scene of the standoff. It appeared to them that someone had raked over the area. They found cigarette butts from many different brands scattered in the area. The suggestion was that these were Air Force personnel, but that seems unlikely. They would have field-stripped the cigarette butts, meaning they would have destroyed the filters and rolled the remaining paper into tiny balls before disposing of them. Other than that, the area appeared to have been cleaned, although the site was remote and inaccessible. Shrum had recovered two of his arrows in the morning of the fight, but out there now, he located the third. It was lying on top of some scrub brush. Confusion about the number of arrows recovered might be explained by the following. On the morning of September 5th, he found two, and some time later, he found the last. It also suggests that an Air Force search of the area, if there had been one, was less than thorough. Paul Cerny, the NICAP field investigator, who was brought in when Shrum's wife wrote to the organization's national headquarters, interviewed Shrum and his wife in July of 1965. He was given the remaining two arrowheads. Analysis, however, revealed nothing. It had, it had been hoped that metal from the robot might have been become embedded on the arrowhead, but close examination failed to find anything. Cerny said that there had been a platinum-colored smear on one of the blades of the arrows, but it was possible that it had been worn off or dislodged during transit. At any rate, the lab doing the analysis could find nothing other than the expected metals. Cerny, who stayed in contact with the Shrums long after the event was over, was impressed with Shrum's sincerity and sanity. In fact, in November of 1995, Cerny added an epilogue to the case, in a boxed edition to an article in the International UFO Reporter, he wrote, Having just reviewed the case files on this fascinating and unusual encounter, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that this incident is factual and authentic. I have spent considerable time and many visits with the main witness, and along with the testimony of the other witnesses, I can rule out any possibility of a hoax. This also includes the involvement of the U.S. Air Force investigation team. The psychological effects on Shrum were extremely convincing and traumatic due to the aftereffects of his experience. Also noteworthy were the unusual detail, proximity, and reactions of the alien crew. The most surprising thing in this case is the fact that the Air Force actually investigated it. So folks, now I'm going to get into some of the theories and just some general observations about this case. Now, this case was studied by Project Blue Book, and the case number was 9093. Now, for quite a while, there was a searchable database on the internet, hosted by the Black Vault, where you could search Blue Book case files. But I did have a look before uh, I recorded this, and I couldn't find it. It now shows that uh, that website, or not, not the Black Files, but that information is basically 404 not found. Now, I don't think it's any great conspiracy, I know that this gentleman uploaded 100,000 files of Project Blue Book type stuff in 2015. If I had to guess, it's simply something where he didn't want to pay for the hosting anymore. So, you know, it's not up there. I did have a cursory look on the internet. I spent a few hours trying to track it down, but I couldn't find it. And I didn't want to delay the entire program simply to have that information in front of me. But just be aware, this was studied by Project Blue Book. And, you know, they had a rather mundane explanation for it. So Shrum's UFO encounter reportedly lasted approximately 12 hours. Shrum was certain that the creatures were being controlled by directions issued to and from the accompanying ship. He wasn't sure if this was via radio or some other means. So, you know, as many of you who study UFOs would have heard of in the past, you know, telepathy is one of the major reasons uh, or one of the major things that is encountered in these cases. So it could have been telepathy, but he was certain that these objects weren't Thinking of their own accord or if they were they were still following commands from this scout ship Now Shrum is convinced that if he would have been captured he would have never seen his family again He wasn't massively into UFOs. He wasn't a devotee of UFOs, so to speak He had read the Biddy and Barney Hill case and a few others and he was really kind of nonplussed by it all he you know, he wasn't one of these sorts that wanted to go out into the forest and see ufos or anything like that and he was absolutely certain if he would have been captured he never would have seen his family and he's made that abundantly clear now because shrum and his two friends all three worked for a company that had made missiles for the u.s military and in fact it was the leading u.s military contractor for missiles he never revealed his true identity and conviction in sorry in connection with this ufo encounter until 2011. when a book covering the encounter was released titled Aliens in the Forest, the Cisco Grove UFO Encounter, by UFO researchers Noe Torres and Ruben Uriarte. Now, I know these gentlemen from elsewhere, and in fact, it was listening to one of them on Coast to Coast AM when I first became aware of this case, as I say. Now, Shrum has stuck to the same story and the same general version of events for over half a century, And surely a hoaxer would have made sure at least one of the other hunters witnessed the events in full. So, you know, if you're hoaxing, you're not just going to put on a show for one person. You would make sure that you would have, you know, maybe all three of them be a witness or or maybe two. So, you know, again, for authenticity, because these hoaxers, if you want someone to believe that this has happened and that you're hoaxing them, you know, you want to get as many of them as you can, not just one. Perhaps the fact that they didn't, uh, you know, that these hoaxers didn't do it for all three is proof enough of the fact that this was authentic. Now, Shrum continued to have nightmares about the incident for many years. And his wife has repeated, you know, she's repeatedly said that he talks and yells in his sleep when he relives the encounter over and over again. One phrase he has said to say over and over throughout these, you know, 50 plus years. And that phrase has been those eyes. Oh God, those eyes. So he was definitely. Horrified by the eyes of the, you know, quote unquote robot. Now Shrum has also recounted that during his encounter, quote, I felt a force trying to penetrate my mind, trying to get in. I resisted it with all of the force of thought I could muster. Now again, that goes back to so often we hear in these UFO cases the fact that people have, you know, telepathy, telepathic communications with creatures. And, you know, it sounds like in this case, maybe either the ship or the creatures themselves were trying to make communication with Shrum, and he was doing his best to block it out. Now, the story of Shrum's encounter did not get known for a while, as he had initially been reluctant to tell his story as he felt embarrassed by it, and he thought that people would mock him for making up such a tall tale. He also felt that he'd, if he did come clean about it all, it could affect his career. Like I say, he was a missile defense contractor, and he was a welder. He, could go on, he would go on to downplay the whole thing and tell his friends, who knew his good and honest character, convinced him to go public with it. It would also emerge later that when he had come from the forest, he had felt ill, and that on seeking medical attention, radiation was mentioned and being found to be the cause, but it's never been corroborated so again if you listen to that earlier you know uh witness statement from from mr alvarez he says that you know he seemed to be very exhausted you know 12 hours i get that's exhausting enough but you know could have radiation been involved who knows now paul cerny of mufon is also quoted uh in in that same book in the um in the cisco grove encounter book as saying Quote, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that this incident is factual and authentic. I've spent considerable time, plus many visits with the main witness, and along with the testimony of the other witnesses, I can rule out any possibility of a hoax. Now, again, uh, you know, that's a repeat of what I said just a little bit ago. But again, you know, these people are trained to spot hoaxers. And again, I'm not saying it's impossible that it's a hoax, but, you know, Paul Cerny definitely would have encountered hoaxers. And in his mind... You know this wasn't a made-up story. Now, you know this case in general wouldn't contain anything um, outside of the ordinary, other than the fact that you know you had a a spaceship and everything else. Uh, But you know it's it's really the whole thing about the robots, uh, the the mix of beings, and this gas. Now there is a bizarre twist to this case. There was a story in a book written in nineteen, sorry, in 1836. Now this book was a French book. And it was called Le Livre des Legendes, and it was written by a French librarian by the name of Antoine Leroux de Lincey. And the book has this to say about elves. If a mortal being dares come near them, they open their mouth, and struck by the breath which escapes from it, the impudent fellow dies poisoned. Now this connection was pointed out by none the less than Jacques Vallet in his essential book, Passport to Magonia. Jacques also asserted that the bizarre effects felt by Shrum are consistent with the sudden deprivation of oxygen, which is true. So, you know, so what do we make of such a scenario, folks? There are certainly other accounts on record that speak of robotic creatures accompanying more flesh and blood aliens. Most receive similar skepticism as this one, as you could expect. The fact that we ourselves use robotic machines for all manner of purposes, though, should halt such one-sided, and predetermined skepticism in its tracks. There are also numerous accounts of witnesses being knocked unconscious by a strange vapor. Perhaps one particular case that contains both of these elements would be the strange encounters of Spring-Heeled Jack from Victorian England, whose roots stretch into legend and folklore, but which has always been of interest to UFO researchers. Now, it's also clear on examining this case that it bears more similarities with other well-known cases, like that of Travis Walton, and the Pascagoula abductions. Whatever it was that happened to Shrum in the forest that night, it had clearly shaken the man with fright and he would always insist that the story was true and that there were really strange beings that were intent on capturing him by that tree that night. None of the three men who went hunting on that evening ever went hunting again. All three were terrified of Shrum's encounter. It ruined all of their hunting experiences for the rest of their lives. Now, one of the most far-fetched and hilarious explanations that I've heard is one of the military explanations. So, they they range from, folks, now, now get this. This one is right up there with the hillbilly moonshine. Renegade Japanese soldiers from World War II who had been landed secretly in California. So, you're telling me that there were Japanese soldiers landed sometime before 1945. They were just hanging out in the woods of Northern California without being captured, without any people encountering them or running into them for 20 years. And then on that night, they just happened to, you know, find this one hunter and accost him. Not to mention the fact that, you know, at least two people saw this ship, saw the lights. I mean, what are you going to tell me next, that it was Japanese soldiers with flashlights? Now, there have been cases of Japanese soldiers in the Pacific who didn't realize the war was over. Or refused to believe it for several years after now this happened in the Philippines and Okinawa and other places but these Japanese soldiers had run in with locals okay so they were the reason that people knew they were there was that they interacted with locals not on a positive standpoint but people would see them or come across things of theirs you know their campsites etc now no one in the US has ever purported To have seen a Japanese soldier, I mean after the war hysteria days, you know out in the wilderness. It it just makes zero sense folks. Now I'm from the Pacific Northwest. We had the balloon balloon bombs that a lot of people don't realize that the Japanese actually dropped bombs on the U.S. via balloon uh, towards the end of the war especially and that it actually killed people. But there were no Japanese personnel. I mean there are there it is a fact that Japanese submarines were spotted off the coast of the west coast of America, but there has never been any factual case of any Japanese soldiers touching foot on any American soil as far as the continental u s goes now um owls you know the, that old uh you know that old caveat of owls you know that's another one that many people love to explain you know these kind of cases by? Oh, it was owls. Yep. So, you know, owls that breathed a noxious gas that knocked them out, owls that were climbing the tree, owls that were interacting with their 14 story tall spaceship. Yep, that all makes sense to me. So, uh, you know, this story, as I said, it's got things in common with other cases, specifically otherworldly beings using that knockout gas on victims. So there's a case of a scoutmaster named Sonny Disverges, who was camping in the woods with a group of scouts in Florida in 1952. When he went to investigate a strange light in the woods, he came upon what he determined to be some sort of craft, unlike anything that he'd ever seen before. On the top of the object was a turret with a horrible-looking being inside. The craft emitted a ball of red fire, which spread out into a cloud and knocked him unconscious when he reached it. In 1947 in Italy, something similar happened to R. L. Johannes, as he was painting near a remote mountain stream. He saw a bright red, lens-shaped object about 30 feet across, which is about 10 meters across, land nearby him. He then noticed two odd-looking, what he described as dwarves, with large heads standing next to it. He called out to them, but they didn't seem very happy to see him. One of them touched his belt, which emitted a beam of vapor towards the artist. Johannes felt something like an electrical discharge, became disoriented, and fell to the ground, but remained conscious. The beings then walked towards him, stole his easel, and went back to their ship, which immediately flew away. And also, let's not forget about our friend Springheel Jack that I've already mentioned. While there were no reports of him being associated with UFO-type objects, he was said to have breathed the plasma-like blue and white fire in a few people's faces, which either caused them to become confused or left them unconscious. Now the cynics naturally find this case to be one of the easiest to discredit. There was only one witness, no physical evidence, and no apparent point to the whole affair. Why would presumed aliens from another planet engage in such a trivial and idiotic waste of time? How could advanced beings from another world have managed to cross vast interstellar distances to get here, only then to be stymied by their intended victim climbing up a tree? Seemingly good questions, right? Until you look at the broad spectrum of UFO cases. It turns out that the UFO literature is full of cases of strange and sometimes seemingly incompetent beings behaving in completely nonsensical ways, sometimes to the point of cosmic stupidity. The better question might be to ask ourselves, why would anyone make up such a story, and what would he possibly have to gain? So folks, I hope that you've enjoyed that case. It's always been one of the more fascinating cases to me. It's always been one of those cases that really makes you question what the whole phenomenon is about. You know, what's actually going on with this UFO phenomenon and everything that is involved in it. I mean, you've really got some strange cases like this. And if you're just now hearing about this, you know, I'm glad that I could bring it to your attention. If you've got any questions about this case or anything I do on the program, you can, of course, contact me. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, as I say, on the website, via email, you know, reach out, let me know, and um, I'll do my best to answer your questions or get back to you as soon as I can. Now, thanks for bearing with me tonight, folks. It's been a very challenging recording session. Um, I'm suffering a bit from asthma and uh, hay fever or sinuses, and it's been a real struggle. Um, So I'm a little bit over my normal release date but I'll have this show up soon and you'll be able to enjoy it at your leisure. So aside from that, folks, thanks so much. I'm not sure what the next program will be, but I'll probably update that later in the week. I just don't wanna hold this program up any longer. So as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, and that quote is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.